Welcome, Think Anesthesia podcast subscribers. This is the audio file of our 2022 November live webinar. Think Anesthesia, assisting ventilation during anesthesia. I am Amanda Shelby, VTS in anesthesia and analgesia and the Think Anesthesia content coordinator. This slide declares that I'm an employee of Jerox and that this presentation may contain promotional subject matter on Alfaxin multidose for dogs and cats and Alfaxin multidose IDX for non-food producing minor species. Any discussion of these medications within the context of this presentation will be performed in a fair and balanced way. Following a brief review of respiratory system anatomy, we will focus on these learning objectives, the importance of adequate ventilation during anesthetic procedures, how to provide assisted ventilation to anesthetize patients by discussing some specific ventilation strategies for patients with respiratory compromise or diseases. We monitor respiration during anesthesia because it is vital to the patient's survival, but also because we depend most commonly on inhalant maintenance anesthetics, which depend on the respiratory system, their depth and frequency for controlling anesthetic depth. You can find an on-demand race-approved lecture on Think Anesthesia dedicated specifically to monitoring the respiratory system. The goals of respiration go beyond the delivery of oxygen to cells and that removal of carbon dioxide from the body. Respiration also assists the body in maintaining acid-base balance, participates in thermoregulation, and is also involved in autonomic regulation of vascular tone, influencing cerebral perfusion pressure and intracranial pressure. The efficiency of these respiratory activities is dependent on ventilation, the movement of air in and out of the lungs. For these reasons, special attention is paid to the respiratory system during all phases of the perianesthetic assessment period. Respiration in mammals is primarily controlled by the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. As the concentration of CO2 increases, the body typically responds by increasing tidal volume and or respiratory frequency. When PaCO2 concentration is low, as that occurs with hyperventilation, the opposite will potentially occur resulting in a period of apnea. Simply put, nuclei involved in respiration are more sensitive to changes in blood carbon dioxide concentration than to changes in blood oxygen concentration in the mammal. Most anesthetics reduce the brainstem sensitivity to both carbon dioxide and oxygen levels in the blood, resulting in the depression of respiration. This is often in a dose-dependent manner. With the tightly controlled system for the respiratory regulation blunted, it's not surprising that hypoventilation resulting in hypercapnia is one of the most frequently observed anesthetic complications. As veterinary professionals involved in anesthesia, it becomes our job to monitor and assist respiratory function in all sedated and anesthetized patients. In patients with comorbidities that affect the respiratory system efficiency, patients may not be able to effectively change their tidal volumes or respiratory frequency to maintain normal partial pressures of carbon dioxide and oxygen. It's our job to help them get that done.
As previously mentioned, anatomical differences exist between species. The number of lung lobes vary between species, tracheal rings differ between species, and how creatures breathe vary. Honestly, a whole lecture could be dedicated to just species differentiation on ventilation. One difference I would like to speak to within the context of this presentation focuses on a basic difference between our dog and cats, so small companion mammals, and some of our domesticated large animal species. Likely the most notable is the position or slope of that diaphragm. For example, when a horse is placed in dorsal recumbency for let's say an abdominal procedure, you can see that the abdominal contents coupled with the dense, heavy lung tissue can impair ventilation. Positioning a patient in either lateral or dorsal recumbency can impact the efficiency and effectiveness of ventilation. This is often referred to as dependent or non-dependent lung fields and contributes to ventilation to perfusion or VQ mismatch, which we'll talk about later in further depth. The veterinary team should review the respiratory system of the specific species they are treating before performing anesthesia. Now, before we jump into a review of the mechanics of the moving of air in and out of the lungs, the primary structures are detailed here. Each portion has a unique function. The nose and nasal passages function as conduits that humidify and warm as well as filter the air of debris as we breathe. The larynx gives us a voice and the pharynx acts as a gatekeeper to the airway to prevent gastric contents or foreign material from entering that airway. The trachea is a lumen comprised of fibrous tissue, smooth muscle, and cartilage that connects the larynx with the lungs. Of course, it bifurcates into two branches called bronchi, and those bronchi continue to divide and the lumen of these airways are reduced as they travel deep into that lung tissue. These airways eventually terminate into air sacs called alveoli, where the magic happens, gas exchange. The lungs, bronchi, and lower airways are contained all within that chest cavity, divided into hemothorax and many of our species, alongside the heart, great vessels, and esophagus who share that home. The esophagus does run through the thorax, connecting the mouth to the stomach. And that chest cavity is separated from the abdomen by the diaphragm muscle, which attaches spine to sternum. These structures working together in the absence of disease or disruption provide adequate ventilation defined as the exchange of oxygen from inspired atmospheric air with carbon dioxide produced in the body by cellular metabolism. Then of course, to optimize survivability, the respiratory system works with the cardiovascular system. Primary players in both of these systems occupy that shared closed cavity space. And this concept is really important as we discuss respiratory mechanics. Here, I'm trying to demonstrate and simplify respiratory mechanics of spontaneous compared to assisted ventilation. Inspiration is an active phase. When the patient is breathing spontaneously, the diaphragm muscle moves caudal, 
negative pressure is generated in that thorax, which pulls air into the lungs. Expiration is a passive phase in most species where the diaphragm returns to its normal resting position and air moves out. When we assist a patient's ventilation, either by applying a mechanical ventilator or administering a breath via the reservoir bag, we apply positive pressure during inspiration. For this reason, assisted ventilation is known as intermittent positive pressure ventilation or IPPV. Expiration during assisted ventilation remains passive. In general, the dynamics of spontaneous ventilation have a positive impact on the cardiovascular structures in the thorax, while assisted ventilation can have negative cardiovascular effects. This includes decreasing venous return to the heart, increasing afterload, decreasing cardiac contractility, and ultimately decreased cardiac output, especially when excessive peak inspiratory pressures are administered. This might not be completely relative, but this is why during CPR directives, overventilation is discouraged. Additionally, the negative impact of high peak inspiratory pressures used during intermittent positive pressure ventilation on that cardiovascular system is exacerbated when patients are hypovolemic. There still remain several reasons for wanting to ventilate a patient. These include providing a controllable delivery of fresh gas, that being oxygen and inhalant anesthetics. Of course, mechanical ventilation can provide a reduced work of breathing. It can prevent hypoventilation and it allows you to apply some ventilation strategies or techniques that maximize gas exchange through potentially minimizing things like atelectasis. In anesthetized patients, application of mechanical ventilation also provides the anesthetist with the comforting knowledge that the patient is being ventilated, especially in the critical patient where our attention on stabilization of other vital parameters might be required. There are three primary indications for providing that assisted ventilation. This includes the presence of hypoventilation. Now this can range from slight elevations in entitled carbon dioxide levels to the extreme, like the example of hypoventilation demonstrated in this arterial blood gas. This patient's partial pressure of carbon dioxide from this arterial sample was 171 millimeters of mercury, causing a severe respiratory acidosis. Another reason, for assisted ventilation is to address hypoxemia, especially in patients where supplemental oxygen via face mask or an oxygen cage or a nasal cannula is insufficient. Once the patient is intubated, 100% oxygen can be delivered and the ventilator and settings can be manipulated to maximize alveolar recruitment. And finally, another indication for assisted ventilation is in patients who are experiencing a marked increase in work of breathing, such as those in respiratory distress, which could precipitate into a state of arrest. Let's take a listen to this patient.
qualifying, right? Of course, there are other reasons the anesthetists prefer to ventilate patients. As mentioned previously, that consistent delivery of inhalant anesthetic and just that comfort of ensuring a certain number of breaths per minute are being delivered. But these three above reasons specifically are immediate indications that assisted ventilation is indicated. Before we review the specific variables that can be manipulated to influence ventilation with the use of a ventilator, let's review how anesthetic ventilators are classified and the terminology that surrounds these classifications. Veterinary anesthetic ventilators use positive pressure to deliver breaths. They are further classified as descending or hanging or ascending or standing. This is based on the direction the bellow moves during expiration. Descending or hanging bellows compress during inspiration and descend during expiration. Let's take a look. Ascending or standing bellows compress during inspiration and send during the expiratory phase. Watch this one. One distinct advantage of using that ascending or standing bellow is that leak detection in these ventilators are, is pretty easy to see. When a leak is present, the bellow will just slowly fall. There are, of course, other ventilators. Piston-driven ventilators are commercially available, specifically for the large animal marketplace. And a further description of those specific ventilators is available elsewhere. Further terminology used to describe ventilators is based on the mode of ventilation they provide. Volume controlled or pressure controlled. And also how they cycle to deliver breaths. Most anesthetic veterinary ventilators are volume controlled, meaning they deliver a preset tidal volume or minute volume until that volume is reached, regardless of the pressure generated. Now, some allow for a pressure limiting setting to help avoid those high peak airway pressures that could result in barotrauma. Airway pressure is dependent on the compliancy and resistance of the breathing circuit as well as the patient's respiratory system. Some ventilators are pressure controlled or limited pressure controlled. These ventilators deliver a volume of gas up to that specific pressure. This results in variable tidal volumes, again, dependent on the breathing circuit and patient's compliancy and resistance. However, they often result in a lower incidence of excessive airway pressures and potential barotrauma. Furthermore, some ventilators can assist the patient-initiated ventilation. This is referred to as supportive ventilation modes and is really more commonly seen and found in critical care or higher-end commercial ventilators. Again, in veterinary medicine, most of our anesthetic ventilators are volume controlled and time cycled. The next logical thing to describe are the parts of the ventilator to best understand how they function when administering a breath as an extension of that patient breathing circuit. When connected to the anesthetic machine, the bellow of the ventilator replaces the patient reservoir bag 
inside that bellow is the breath of fresh air that patient receives. The phases of a ventilator are made up of inspiratory flow, inspiratory pause, expiratory flow, and expiratory pause. The time spent and the volume or pressure delivered during the inspiratory flow phase is influenced by us, the operator. During the inspiratory flow phase, the drive gas, which is usually 100% oxygen, fills the chamber outside the bellow, compressing them to deliver a breath. Following inspiration, there's a pause before the expiratory flow phase begins, allowing the bellow to rise. In the case of an ascending bellows shown here, during this phase, the bellow is filled with expired and fresh gas like that we observe with the reservoir bag. The degree of expired gas that enters and remains within that bellow is dependent upon the fresh gas flow rate we've set on our oxygen flow meter. Finally, there is an expiratory phase before the next breath is delivered. Now, this is an image of a control box of a Smith's Medical Surgivet Vetipac ventilator. I realize this might look unfamiliar to you, particularly if you're using another manufacturer's ventilator. However, this model allows us to explore dependent variables of ventilation more so than other commercially available veterinary anesthetic ventilators. There will be some similarities between mechanical ventilators, and our focus is less on this specific model, but rather on the terminology of variables we manipulate to assist patient ventilation. First and foremost, ventilators have some sort of on-off valve, and it's exactly what it says it is. Now, not all of them have a valve or a switch dedicated to on-off. Sometimes the on mode is simply activated by manipulating, let's say, the volume or inspiratory flow setting. Regardless, it's important to ensure that your ventilator settings are minimized before initiating the machine to avoid administration of a breath that could generate excessive airway pressures and result in that barotrauma. This model allows you to control both inspiratory time and inspiratory flow independently and is fairly unique of veterinary anesthetic ventilators. This function is combined in one control for many of the common anesthetic ventilators, such as the matrix models from Midmark or the Hallowell ventilators that are common in, in clinical practice. Inspiratory time and inspiratory flow knobs on this ventilator, again, whether they're separate or combined, ultimately influence the tidal volume a patient receives. Inspiratory time is the length of time allowed for inspiration. Generally, this setting should be at least one second or greater to ensure adequate gas exchange occurs. Long inspiratory times can negatively impact cardiac output. Short inspiratory times can result in poor gas exchange or ventilation. Inspiratory flow is the force at which a breath is administered over that selected inspiratory time. The sensitivity of this valve depends on the patient's tidal volume, lung compliancy, and airway resistance. Small, gradual increases in inspiratory flow are recommended. While you watch the pressure manometer on your anesthetic machine or ventilator. Expiratory time is the time between cycles of inspiration. 
some models will identify this control knob as a respiratory rate. Either way, if you increase expiratory time, that being the time between breaths, you are decreasing the number of breaths per minute. So you're decreasing the respiratory rate. If you decrease expiratory time, so shorten the time between breaths, this will increase your respiratory rate or the total number of breaths per minute. For this ventilator model, manipulation of the inspiratory and expiratory knobs controls your inspiratory to expiratory ratio. This is an important concept for respiratory physiology because ultimately this influences gas exchange. Again, defined as the time allowed for oxygen to physically get into the blood and carbon dioxide to physically leave the bloodstream. Normal IE ratio needs to be at least one to two, meaning exhalation should be twice the length of inhalation, or rebreathing can occur, compromising gas exchange. Most commercial veterinary ventilators, at least, have a set IE ratio of one to two. Finally, most ventilators do have some safety features built in. This one has a pressure limiting valve that produces an audible alarm when the breath exceeds the pressure set on this knob. The more sophisticated the ventilator, generally the more options as well as safety features are provided. An example of a sophisticated veterinary ventilator is the Tophonius, our marketed large animal piston ventilator and it allows for adjustments in things like positive end expiratory pressure, so PEEP. It also allows for inspiratory pause and adjustments for fraction of inspired oxygen. I really like this ventilator for a variety of reasons, but mostly because it also allows the user to appreciate the relationship between dependent and independent ventilation variables. The green boxes are all manipulatable variables that you can control. When the user changes them, there's an impact on the other variables or dependent variables shown by the light blue boxes. I feel this really gives the end user a more comprehensive understanding of how the ventilator and changes of the ventilator settings can influence the act of ventilation. Obviously, it's impossible to discuss every commercially available ventilator and how to specifically operate them. Instead, consider reading the user manual for your clinic's ventilator and playing with, for lack of a better word, the ventilator when it's not on a patient. There are, however, a few additional variables to understand and their impact on ventilation before you set that ventilator on a patient. These include variables that affect minute ventilation, consisting of calculating tidal volumes, understanding normal and abnormal respiratory frequencies or rates, and potentially understanding their influence on minute ventilation. Starting with a calculation of patient's expected tidal volume, you can use this equation. You can use the graduations on the bellow casing of that mechanical ventilator to give you an idea if you're reaching within that patient's expected tidal volume. You should also be aware of the associated peak inspiratory pressure and expected tidal volume should generate in a patient. And finally, we really wanna make sure that we're watching that patient manometer of the anesthetic machine and counting respiratory frequency or rate. 
Now, tidal volume is the volume in milliliters or liters of air of inspired or expired in one breath. Most ventilators do provide, as mentioned, graduations on that bellow casing. These are estimates of the volume being delivered during inspiration. These graduations are not exactly the patient's tidal volume, but the anesthetist, again, should have a working knowledge of the expected patient tidal volume range, as well as that expected peak inspiratory pressure. In the healthy small animal patient, peak inspiratory pressures of 10 to 12 centimeters of water with a normal respiratory rate of six to 20 breaths per minute generally provide effective minute ventilation, controlling that entitled CO2 within that normal range of 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Larger breaths that generate 15 to 20 centimeters of water are considered side breaths and might be required but they could result in hyperventilation in the healthy patient. In healthy large animal patients, 20 to 30 centimeters of water are often required to generate normal tidal volumes. Regardless, the anesthetist should expect the peak inspiratory pressure to increase when tidal volume increases and the reverse to occur when tidal volume decreases. Peak inspiratory pressure and tidal volume will also change when lung compliancy or resistance changes. Finally, before we start our discussion on managing that specific respiratory patient, it is worth highlighting again how intermittent positive pressure ventilation impacts other body systems, especially the systems that share that closed cavity space or systems that pass through the thorax, namely, the cardiovascular and gastrointestinal systems. As you can see, when these lungs inflate with positive pressure ventilation, there's an increased intrathoracic pressure resulting in decreased venous return, increased afterload, and ultimately decreased cardiac output. Increased intrathoracic pressure can also decrease contractility of the heart. Positive pressure is also placed on the stomach and esophagus during inspiration, potentially increasing the incidence of regurgitation and even the risk of aspiration of gastric contents in those patients with a full distended stomach. Specific respiratory indices that have direct effect on the rate and amount of positive pressure in the thorax include large tidal volumes long inspiratory times, and low IE ratios. It is the responsibility of the entire veterinary team to identify patients with respiratory deficits or patients prone to respiratory disease upon presentation and before sedation or anesthesia. A full physical exam should be performed on every animal scheduled for anesthesia or sedation, including observations of respiratory effort and rate, auscultation of the lung fields, plus or minus diagnostics such as radiographs, ultrasounds, potentially even CAT scans. Patients with primary respiratory disease involving upper and lower respiratory tract, or even patients with the disease that have the potential to compromise ventilation, especially once anesthetized, these are the patients we're targeting in this presentation. Across species, a patient that cannot effectively and efficiently ventilate 
is a patient at higher risk for anesthetic complications. Preparation is key in the performance and outcome of anesthesia, but it is especially important in patients with primary or secondary respiratory disease. Good patient preparation includes avoiding increases in oxygen requirements. This can be accomplished by minimizing stress during the peri-anesthetic period, but especially in that pre-anesthetic period, including avoiding physical restraint of the patient where chemical restraint and sedation is just a smarter option. Obtaining patent intravenous access, being able to prepare to execute a rapid sequence induction and secure a patent airway. Preparation could also include being prepared for an alternative intubation technique, such as a retrograde intubation, which you can find how to perform on our instructional video section or by scanning that QR code. Preparation also includes maximizing oxygenation of the patient by pre-oxygenating. And this is important up to the point of intubation. And finally, having a good working knowledge of effective ventilatory strategies that are readily available to implement. As an anesthetist, I absolutely love upper airway diseases. We can effectively fix these patients or at least allow them to breathe easier once we've intubated them. These diseases, however, can include areas involving the nares and oral tracheal openings, such as obstructive masses, laryngeal paralysis, and brachycephalic syndrome. As to how to ventilate these guys, specific ventilatory strategies are not generally required. Once they are intubated, the work of breathing is reduced and the patient can often spontaneously ventilate adequately enough for appropriate gas exchange throughout that anesthetic procedure. Obviously, recovery following the surgical procedure or following extubation for whatever procedure they had is what requires diligent monitoring. Lower airway disease that affects the trachea, bronchi, and lungs might include diseases but are not limited to tracheal collapse, foreign bodies, potentially tumors of the airways, diffusion barrier impairments, such as pulmonary edema, pneumonia, or asthma. These patients are at risk for a ventilation to perfusion mismatch, as well as hypoxemia, and often require assisted ventilation once anesthetized. Ventilatory strategies to maximize ventilation and oxygenation include the use of inspiratory pauses, utilization of positive end expiratory pressure, PEEP, and efforts to minimize atelectasis as well as VQ mismatch. And these might include aggressive lung recruitment maneuvers. Finally, the last group of respiratory diseases are space-occupying restrictive disease. In these patients, every effort is made to remove the foreign material restriction from that lower airway. Often fluid and air can be removed by thoracocentesis. Whereas tissue presents a little more of a challenge, maybe through some creative positioning, like you see with the dog on the pillow trying to elevate its thorax over abdomen, 
that was a diaphragmatic hernia. Ultimately, these patients often require supplemental oxygen before as well as after the anesthetic procedure, and they absolutely probably are going to require ventilation support. Specific ventilator strategies for space-occupying respiratory disease patients will depend on the chronicity of the disease. For acute space-occupying diseases, the placement of chest tubes to facilitate the removal of air fluid prior to induction may actually allow that patient to effectively spontaneously ventilate without intervention. However, the anesthetist should monitor that patient's end tidal CO2 and SpO2, ideally comparing these variables to an arterial blood gas on occasion to detect a low PF ratio, ventilation perfusion mismatch, and ultimately that acid-base status looking for a respiratory acidosis. If decompensation occurs in a space-occupying disease patient, which is often characterized by a sudden change in respiratory characteristics, so that being rate and depth of ventilation, could be a sudden change in entitled carbon dioxide levels and or a decrease in your SpO2 and PaO2, assisted ventilation should be initiated. High peak inspiratory pressures, long inspiratory times with slow inspiratory flows, the use of positive end expiratory pressure, again, PEEP, and potentially even recruitment maneuvers may be required to displace the space occupying material. Ultimately, that space occupying material is causing an increase in resistance, decrease in compliancy to inflate those lungs and provide adequate ventilation. For chronic space occupying respiratory diseases, rapid reinflation of an atelectic lung field or collapsed lung field could lead to re-expansion pulmonary edema. To minimize the occurrence and or severity of re-expansion pulmonary edema, a slow increase in compliance is encouraged using more frequent, lower peak inspiratory or sm smaller tidal volumes as long as oxygen and ventilation is preserved. Often these patients will require supplemental oxygen in recovery and are allowed to re-expand their lungs via spontaneous ventilation as they are diligently monitored into that recovery phase. Of course, sometimes patients present with trauma or neurologic disease that may require ventilatory support. Initial stabilization and assessment are crucial to determine how to best support the patient's ventilatory effort. For example, a patient hit by car with a pneumothorax and pulmonary contusions may initially require a thoracocentesis and supplemental oxygen to allow for adequate ventilation. Even if fractures that require surgical attention are present, anesthesia is often delayed due to the risk of worsening the respiratory trauma. Pulmonary contusions or areas of bruising in the lungs tend to worsen in the first 24 to 36 hours following trauma. And they often do not become radiographically apparent until 12 to 24 hours following the insult. Again, when possible, delaying anesthesia is recommended in patients with pulmonary contusions. In patients with these pulmonary contusions, that patient is allowed an opportunity to spontaneously ventilate and assisted ventilation is only supplied if deemed necessary. 
We monitor for ventilation perfusion mismatch, hypoxemia, and hypoventilation to aid in determining if supplemental ventilation is required. If assisted ventilation is required, our strategy focuses on low peak inspiratory pressures, ideally less than 10 to 12 centimeters of water, with an appropriate inspiratory to expiratory ratio and normal inspiratory times of one to one and a half seconds. The anesthetist should monitor for the presence or occurrence of a tension pneumothorax and be prepared to perform a thoracocentesis or place chest tubes. This is often seen by a rapid desaturation of oxygen, so a drop in your SpO2, a sudden change in your intidal CO2 if the tension pneumothorax is significant, your arterial CO2 could climb, but your intidal CO2 could drop. You might see an increase in peak airway pressures and a decrease in tidal volume if you were already on mechanical ventilation. And if you have a high pressure alarm, it's probably making some noise. Keep that in mind if you're concerned that a tension pneumothorax is a possible complication for your patient. Patients with disease that result in increased abdominal pressure will benefit from assisted ventilation once anesthetized, especially when they're placed in dorsal recumbency, which let's be honest, is the position that anything with a huge abdomen has to be placed in for surgical intervention. A few examples include patients with a GDB, orgomegaly, colic if you're dealing with large animals, or chinchillas, and end-stage pregnancy. These patients generally require a higher peak inspiratory pressure to effectively expand the lungs. Again, that huge abdomen is reducing their compliancy, increasing resistance to adequate ventilation. They generally require longer inspiratory times and lower IE ratios to achieve the minute ventilation and promote gas exchange. So one to two, one to three, some even use one to four. They will often also require cardiovascular support with fluid administration, positive inotropes and pressors, as well as diligent monitoring by a dedicated anesthetist. In this final section of the presentation, we're gonna discuss and troubleshoot some respiratory complications experienced during anesthesia, such as hypoxemia, atelectasis, which I attempted to demonstrate in this little scribble at the bottom of your slide, and a ventilation to perfusion mismatch. All of these can lead to a respiratory acid-base derangement and ultimately poor ventilation. Unfortunately, we do not have time to explain the interpretation of blood gas analysis in this lecture. Therefore, I am operating on some basic knowledge regarding blood gas interpretation. Hypoxemia. Hypoxemia is defined as a PaO2, so partial pressure of oxygen, less than 60, some references will suggest 70 millimeters of mercury, regardless of the fraction of inspired oxygen. That means in patients on room air, normal PaO2 is between 80 to 100 millimeters of mercury. Patients receiving 100% oxygen, like our anesthetized patients, should have a PaO2 of approximately 500 millimeters of mercury. 
the association between SpO2, so pulse oximetry, and PaO2, which we get from blood gas analysis, is demonstrated on the oxygen hemoglobin disso dissociation curve, where a PaO2 of 60 millimeters of mercury is associated with an SpO2, so pulse ox reading, of 90%. This is that red dot. An SpO2 of 97% or greater is associated with a partial pressure of oxygen, PaO2, again, from our blood gas analysis, between 80, if you're on room air, and 500 or more, if you're on 100% oxygen. This is illustrated by the yellow to green dot on that graph. While SpO2, or a pulse oximeter, is extremely value, valuable in that moment-to-moment -moment assessment of the patient, it is not a sensitive tool for evaluating the adequacy of oxygenation. There are five distinct causes of hypoxemia listed there on your slide. And the treatment options for hypoxemia, obviously outside identifying the cause, first increasing your inspired fraction of oxygen. So let's get that patient on 100% oxygen, potentially having to induce anesthesia and intubate them. Control that ventilation, providing adequate tidal volumes, appropriate inspiratory-expiratory ratios. You might have to include positive end expiratory pressures. You may have to do some side breaths or recruitment maneuvers. And you might need to support the system with some drugs bronchodilators, and ultimately, when we've maximized supporting the ventilation side of things, we need to ensure that we have adequate perfusion and blood pumping through those lungs, exchanging carbon dioxide and oxygen, and then delivering that oxygen to the body. So when all else fails, or in addition to addressing the ventilation component, we need to maximize perfusion in that patient. Moving on, ventilation perfusion mismatch is best seen in about any large animal case, especially when you place that horse or large ruminant under anesthesia in lateral or dorsal recumbency, just due to their size and anatomy. To demonstrate this, I use an image of a horse being positioned in dorsal recumbency. Ventilation perfusion mismatch represents the distribution of ventilation and perfusion throughout all lung fields. Some lung fields receive more ventilation while others receive more perfusion or blood. Ideally, as a ratio, ventilation to perfusion would be one-to-one, -one, as shown here. With adequate ventilation to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide and adequate perfusion or pulmonary blood circulation to participate in gas exchange, you get that one-to-one -one ratio. However, in reality, during anesthesia, sometimes regardless of patient positioning, air will flow to the path of least resistance, so usually up, and travels to that most compliant lung during that inspiration phase. Fluid is denser than air, and blood pools, creating variable distribution of ventilation to perfusion throughout those lung fields. Taking these principles into consideration, we demonstrate the non-dependent lung fields receiving greater ventilation and less perfusion compared to that dependent lung field 
So the most dorsal or the down lung in a horse or a dog that's lateral. And that dependent lung field, it's going to be more prone to atelectasis. So dependent lung fields are harder to ventilate, harder to force air into, but they receive proportionately a larger or greater blood supply. You might be wondering, how do we confirm that ventilation to perfusion or VQ mismatch is present? And how do I address it in my anesthetized patient? When you have access to blood gas analysis and capnography, you can calculate the gradient or difference between in tidal carbon dioxide and the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. This is a simplified method for rapid determination of ventilation perfusion mismatch. In small companion animals, less than five millimeters of mercury difference is tolerated, while in larger species, up to about 10 millimeters of mercury is often tolerated as normal occurrence. Let us demonstrate this by looking at a blood gas where an entitled CO2 is 86 millimeters of mercury. Now, if you do not have access to run an arterial blood gas at your hospital for your patients, you could try giving the patient a nice deep sigh breath to see if there's a sudden change in that entitled CO2 reading. This could suggest you have some degree of excessive atelectasis contributing to a ventilation perfusion mismatch. So without the technology of a blood gas analysis or capnograph, it is challenging to quantify a ventilation perfusion mismatch. But with experience, you will likely be able to identify patients at least prone to this occurrence and provide them supplemental ventilation. Treatment options for ventilation to perfusion mismatch. The treatment options focusing on an appropriate inspiratory-expiratory ratio potentially implementing positive end expiratory pressure or PEEP. And if severe atelectasis is present and there's no contraindication to high airway pressures, you could use side breaths or what we call recruitment maneuvers. When perfusion is the issue, an IE ratio of one to two or one to three is the goal. At these ratios, increased intrathoracic pressures are minimized and sufficient time for cardiac filling is preserved. The effort is then focused on maximizing perfusion. So monitor blood pressure, look at capillary refill time, ensure that the blood is pumping through the lungs and that there's time for gas exchange to occur. Resolving hypovolemia and hypotension is really your focus. Ensuring adequate oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. So if the patient's anemic, that could have an influence. In patients appropriately oxygenating, consideration for fractions of reduced inspired oxygen, so less than one, could be a consideration. And we'll explain that here on this slide. So briefly, let's just take a moment to further discuss atelectasis. Atelectasis is defined as the partial or complete collapse of a lung. There are several contributing factors to the occurrence of atelectasis. Some degree of atelectasis will occur during every anesthetic event. Respiratory depression associated with our drug or decreases in respiratory derive. The simple principles of compliancy and that it's easier to inflate alveoli that are already inflated. Physical compressions of aspects of caudal lung lobes by their own tissues, so think diaphragmatic hernia, large horse placed in dorsal recumbency, GDV, lots of abdominal pressure. But 
the use of 100% oxygen as our fresh gas flow rate displaces the nitrogen in our lungs. Nitrogen is comparable to the skeleton of the alveoli. When nitrogen is displaced from the alveoli, the alveoli are more at risk to collapse. So how do we address atelectasis? Ventilation strategies such as assisted ventilation, implementing PEEP, and even recruit maneuvers can be used. If atelectasis is still challenging to grasp, take a look at those balloons. On the far right is an atelectic one. When PEEP is applied, some alveoli will maintain a low positive pressure. Therefore, the next time I give a breath, they'll be easier to inflate. PEEP can be used during spontaneous or assisted ventilation. However, because positive pressure is maintained during expiration, excessive PEEP will compromise pulmonary perfusion and could further worsen cardiac output if used excessively. Maybe you don't have a fancy PEEP valve, like the fixed ones shown on your slide. Don't worry if you don't have commercially manufactured PEEP valves, PEEP can easily be accomplished with a bucket of water and some creativity to scavenge waste gases. All you have to do is fill your suction container to the depth in this situation. I'm doing 10 centimeters of water, positive end expiratory pressure. You can see that's at that ruler and you stick your expiratory or exhaust hosing into that depth of water, and that causes there to be a positive end expiratory pressure at the centimeters of depth of water that you've applied. Critical note, when you apply positive end expiratory pressure or PEEP to a circuit, the reservoir bag or the bellow of the ventilator will appear to be bulging. That's normal, and it's really important to allow that to happen. Deflating those bags or disconnecting any part of the circuit to relieve that excessive expiratory, positive expiratory pressure will eliminate the PEEP benefit. Here is an example of several ventilatory strategies applied to an equine colic case. Basically, in the interest of time, I had to pick one case that could demonstrate a variety of strategies, just so you can kind of put it all together on how you might apply to a patient and see if your applications are being effective. So as previously mentioned, horses are an, an example of a species that are poor spontaneous ventilators requiring assisted ventilation strategies. This horse presented with a large colon torsion. It had a distended, painful abdomen. Following the induction of anesthesia, the horse is intubated. It's moved to the surgical table in dorsal recumbency. Mechanical ventilator is started with six breaths per minute, generating a peak inspiratory pressure of 40 centimeters of water with a two and a half second inspiratory time and an IE ratio of one to three. In horses, an arterial line is placed for blood gas analysis and sampling, and this blood gas was obtained. So taking a look at this blood gas, the pH is slightly low, especially for a horse. The arterial PaCO2 is 65.7 millimeters of mercury. Our PaO2 is 70 millimeters of mercury, so panicking a little bit there. And our O2 saturation calculated by our blood gas machine is in agreement with that. So we calculate that we have a ventilation to perfusion mismatch. Again, that comes from taking your arterial CO2 and subtract your entitled CO2, giving you 25.7 millimeters of mercury gradient or difference. This is greater than 10. It's considered significant. So now we need to decide what do we want to do? This is a colic, severely distended abdomen. 
we would expect this horse to be struggling, not with just ventilation, but also with perfusion. There are several things we can try to do. Add positive end expiratory pressure. We can consider applying an inspiratory pause. We can consider applying alveolar recruitment maneuvers, or, and we can use bronchodilators. Meanwhile, the cardiovascular support strategy will include fluid boluses and positive inotropes, potentially even pressors. So our goals in applying these ventilation strategies for this patient are to improve his oxygen, as well as reduce his ventilation to perfusion mismatch. So here I've created a table to assist in demonstrating the application of our ventilator strategies. So don't worry if you don't anesthetize the horses, and this would apply similarly, albeit at lower airway pressures in companion small animals like a dog with a GDP. So based on our ventilator settings that I provided you, the first breath at two and a half seconds, inspiratory time generated that peak inspiratory pressure near 40 centimeters of water. This is high, even for a horse, but it's high because of his increased abdominal pressure. So increased resistance and decreased compliancy. With an open abdomen, we would expect this peak inspiratory pressure to decrease. And often many would wait to run an arterial blood gas sample until the procedure had started and the abdomen was open. In this example, the anesthetist chose to add an inspiratory pause as well as 7.5 centimeters of water peak. And you can see that the peak inspiratory plateau is held for half a second. Of course, that resting airway pressure is holding at seven and a half centimeters of water. And at this point, we just need to wait before running our next blood gas, probably 15 to 20 minutes to see if our strategy is making any difference. Here, the first blood gas side by side with our subsequent blood gas. Again, the entitled CO2 is written at the time the blood was sampled. Okay, so we don't have a lot to celebrate, but we're moving in the right direction. We have a slight increase in pH, a good decrease in our arterial carbon dioxide, and we have a very marginal increase in our oxygen. You can see we have a pretty good decrease. We cut it greater than half. Our gradients between our entitral and arterial CO2s. So we made a difference, but we want to go further because we haven't made a huge difference in our oxygen. So we're going to add a recruitment maneuver. A recruitment maneuver is a stair step increase in peak airway pressures to try to recruit alveoli that could be collapsed. So yeah, we went to some scary pressures. Pressures as high as 80 centimeters of water have been reported in horses with recruitment maneuvers. However, it's really important to consider that these high inspiratory pressures will result in cardiovascular compromise. So as anesthetists, we really need to support the cardiovascular system and weigh the benefits to the side effects when performing or implementing recruitment maneuvers to address the ventilation to perfusion mismatch or hypoxemia. Here I have our second blood gas where we had mild improvements compared to the blood gas following all of our efforts. And we celebrate because we've normalized this horse's pH. We have a PaCO2 in a normal range. We've almost reduced that entitled to arterial carbon dioxide gradient to a normal range for a horse. So 10 is considered normal. 
And most importantly, at this point, we have increased that patient's PaO2. While it isn't normal for a patient on 100% oxygen, it is significantly improved. Inspiratory pause and PEEP was continued on this horse and blood gases were monitored for the duration of the surgery and all parties hoped this horse stood well in recovery. As important as it is to recognize when assisted ventilation is required and knowing how to apply a mechanical ventilator to a patient, discontinuing mechanical ventilation is also a step in the process towards successful recovery. The first step is opening that APL or pop-off valve when disconnecting the ventilator from the breathing apparatus of the patient circuit. In horses, there is evidence that disconnection from a ventilator should be abrupt without weaning. Weaning meaning a decrease in respiratory rate or tidal volume to increase that partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood, which ultimately would stimulate a respiratory derive. However, in horses, reducing assisted ventilation while the animal is still anesthetized likely has more to do with their ability to oxygenate. A sudden drop in PaO2 is associated from reduced minute ventilation. Again, anatomic differences between horses and our cats and dogs exist. So in dogs and cats, some will elect to adopt this abrupt discontinuation of assisted ventilation, while others modify their settings until the patient attempts spontaneous ventilation before recovery. Regardless of your style, this does not mean that we are not monitoring for the return of spontaneous ventilation and adequate oxygenation. We are providing manual respirations and supplemental oxygen if required. Supportive additional breaths are administered to all patients as they resume adequate spontaneous ventilation and sustainable oxygenation. Recovering patients who experience respiratory-related complications during anesthesia require a dedicated recovery technician who is attentive and providing continuous monitoring of respiratory rate, respiratory effort, and ideally oxygenation, as well as providing supplemental oxygenation if required. Sternal recumbency is the preferred position for all patients recovering from anesthesia and should be used when possible. I know in large animal patients, this is challenging depending on your recovery suite. When sternal recumbency is not possible, it is very important that a large animal patient maintain the same lateral side down as they were positioned during anesthesia or surgery. The dependent lung is atelectic. Flipping size will cause that non-dependent lung to lose functionality, reducing the overall adequacy of ventilation and oxygenation. Obviously, if that horse or cow was in dorsal recumbency, sternal recumbency is preferred, but lateral recumbency is often the most practical. Elevation of the head in patients with a history of regurgitation is ideal. Extubation should only occur once the patient has demonstrated the ability to consciously protect the patency of their airway. This often involves return of swallowing and potentially even coughing, as well as the ability to lift their head. Additional safe measures include maintaining IV access and having items available to facilitate reintubation and for those patients prone to upper airway obstruction, potentially even a tracheostomy kit near the recovery suite. At Jerox, we know you have many continued education opportunities available, and we thank you. Listening to this podcast or audio file from the November 2022 live webinar presentation. 
should you have any questions, concerns, or issues with our process, please do not hesitate to email us at thinkanesthesia at jurox.com.